You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I'm your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me today is my co-host, co-founder, good friend. Uh, what else can I throw on there, Aaron? <laughs> I don't know. I, we'll have to work. I, have to, I, I need to improve your list of uh, adjectives there to describe yeah, there me. There we go. Since I know what you're going to do, you're going to kick it over me to introduce it's our guest. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and do that. Author, speaker, and executive coach, Dr. Belinda Chu, focuses on individuals and organizations to co-create healthier ecosystems and cultivate authenticity. Founder of Hummingbird Research Coaching Consulting, Belinda brings over 20 years of experience in leadership development and training, executive coaching, consulting, public diplomacy, and higher education to be a catalyst for leaders of diverse experiences so they may be of greatest service to others. She works with a wide range of organizations such as Burberry, ESPN, Headspace, Paramount Plus, Regeneron, Sony, Stanford, and UNOPS. An International Coaching Federation Professional Certified Executive Coach, Belinda works with individuals at all levels, from the C-plus suite to emerging leaders. She also engages at organizational levels to build more inclusive and equitable global teams. She serves as a visiting faculty member and coach for the Tuck School of Business's Executive Education Program, MBA and MHDS programs, Dartmouth's LEADS program for high potentials, and Rockefeller Center's Management and Leadership Development Program. She is also a certified teacher for the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, a faculty member with the Inner MBA, teaching fellow with True North Leadership, and Mind Gym Coach. Additionally, she is an international liaison with the U.S. Department of State, advises EI Focus to cultivate female leaders through sports and emotional intelligence, and is a board member of Music to Life. She is the author of numerous publications, a certified yoga teacher and forest guide and improv member. Belinda holds a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College, a master's from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and a doctorate from Columbia University. She's based here in New Hampshire, where I am too, with Bandit, the pink-nosed puppy, a.k.a. Queen Amygdala. I don't know if we'll see an appearance from Bandit today. Belinda, thanks so much for joining us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, and thank you for that introduction. So I was a little humbling to kind of like, oh, okay, all right. You know, it's- <laughs> the first question I had for you is with everything in your bio, everything you're doing, how do you find time to even visit with us today? Because you're wonderful. And I love talking to people <laughs> about this work. And I love people who also uh, recognize that my dog, who, yes, Queen Amygdala, I just came back from a, a two-week um two and a half week trip and she you know most dogs like you, you kind of want that welcome and they kiss you that welcome all she literally ran by me three times and she wouldn't look at me for about 20 years so mad i'm sure she'll get over that fairly quickly this this afternoon evening so i hope so anyways so thank you again belinda for joining us so you and your company hummingbird bring together this wonderful combination of academic research with real world coaching and consulting. Can you share with us a little about the journey that has taken you to where you are today and the work that you've, uh, that you're currently involved yeah, with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, boy, how much time do we have? Um, I know it's 
<laughs> I think a lot of you know folks and colleagues that that I, I work with, engage with, probably would have a very similar answer in that nothing's fully ever planned. Um, as I as one of my um, dear coaches, we talked about the squiggly career in many ways, and so I think that's been both a you know combination of a lot of luck and a great deal of very being very fortunate to be around some incredible mentors and colleagues and just people who have supported me along the way. It sounds really cheesy when I say that, but it is actually very true. Uh, and so being able to really kind of merge a lot of my interests, both I've always sort of sat in the in-betweens, like my whole life, I think, has been the in-between, whether it's in between cultures, whether it's in between, you know, spaces of whether it's the corporate world and that academic world. I've always sort of, uh, I always say, when you don't belong anywhere, when you're raised sort of kind of where you're not, you don't belong, you end up belonging everywhere. And so that's sort of what I've always embraced is just sort of being, kind of being comfortable in that space in between. Um, and not willing quite probably my need for a lot of uh, different, uh, you know, interests and things like that and short attention span that all helps in terms of not willing to give up too many things quite yet. I would assume that allows you then to be able to fit and fill spaces with a lot of different types of organizations and, and people as well. So my guess is it serves you incredibly well in the work you do. Yeah, I think in, in some ways um, it's it's not easy. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still always trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And I do think there is sort of space and need for all types of individuals in terms of, you know, for some folks and I've always admire those who really know where they there's that one thing that they just grab onto. And I have such admiration for that. I, and I remember when I was in there, I thought that's what I need to do as well. Grab on that one mm-hmm. thing. And I just couldn't do it. Um, it just didn't quite feel right to me until I really um, started to appreciate how we do need every, you know, different pieces. And, and so even though at some times I am still trying to work through that, but more and more, it may seem disparate, but there's so many dots. And, and what, one thing I love doing, and this kind of perhaps aligned with that spaces in between, is how do you connect the dots? Because the academic world and the corporate world we think are so different, or C-suite leaders versus, you know, these young activists that I just came off this, this two-week trip of, you think they're different, but we're not. We're all dealing with such similar mm. struggles and fears and, and issues. And it's how do we connect the dots, not just amongst people, but also with this greater world in which we, we live in. Well, a major focus of the work that you do with students and clients um, revolves around this concept of a compassion strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is exactly and maybe why it's so needed as we sit here in the year 2023? Yeah, I mean... It's really interesting because the word compassion has always been in some ways part of how I grew up, but not really understanding what does this mean. And I think I probably always, and I'm, you know, kind of continue to investigate, what does this mean in, in 2023, right? I think it's a lot of terms, there's this misunderstanding that compassion is this, you know, as I say, soft, squishy concept of like, Hey, you know, we're all, you know, going to go meditate on a mountaintop and be friends forever. And while I would love to have us all be friends forever and play with dogs all the time, I think in cartoons, but, you know, I think one of the key pieces, as we know right now, whether it's, you know, the state of politics, whether it's the state of our environment, whether it's the state of uh, race relations, all of these things that are very real, 
compassion, and as we now understand more from the neuroscientists who are studying this, it's not just sort of a nice-to-have concept or this sort of fluffy thing, but a very real neurobiological sort of skill that we should all cultivate so that we can acknowledge the good, the bad, the ugly that is in front of us, not shy away from us, but still be able to show up with humanity and show up with, uh, you know, with, with that really applied empathy, right? Empathy and action towards, again, not just human beings, but of course, all the other <laughs> sort of uh, beings that, uh, that that we inhabit and everything that we, you know, we do impacts others and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that we'd love to do is kind of dive more deeply into the components of your compassion strategy. The first is centeredness. Or what is that exactly? And why is it difficult for so many leaders to be yeah. centered? Yeah. So centeredness, it's interesting because this is a, a phrase that Bain actually sort of started to use. And I like alliteration. So the three C's. Um, but really when we're talking about centeredness, it is, it's mindfulness plus. And I know in the last, I would say five years, maybe even more than that, 10 years, mindfulness has become much more accepted in the workplace because, you know, I think before that it was sort of like, oh, you know, it's again, something nice to have in a retreat center or in the large spaces, but more and more there's this uh, greater acceptance that this is absolutely critical to how we lead and how we show up in the workplace. Um, when I think about working with leaders and also being in that role myself a couple of times is I will say, you know, that the ability to understand how we choose where our attention goes um, how we choose to show up for ourselves and others, and how do we become more comfortable with what's going on inside, right, requires us to be be present. And I think, and it's not so simple as in being present, just, of course, it's being present in the moment, but it's beyond that, right? It's really having choice of how do we bring our capacity to really consider what's the wisest decision in this moment that I can make, right? Because when we think about, and there's more and more we'd like to be Dan Goldman, for example, from where I've had the honor of working with others have shown that technical skills will only get us so far, right? So I started my career as a consultant. I was an econ major, I was a political philosophy major, right? But learning how to mock, those are things that I learned in the workplace. And I was very fortunate to have a great environment that let me do that. And so the technical skills we can learn, we can teach. These other aspects of how do you manage yourself, how do you manage others around you, those are all the things that are not always taught in school, right? Those are, and to me, one of my pet peeves is that it's called soft skills. And, you know, my thing right. is, what is soft about working with human beings? What is soft about managing all the, you know, think about all the stories we tell about ourselves, all the things that trip us up in terms of being able to make wise decisions. Because as leaders, our decisions don't just impact us. It has this huge ripple effect on all those, not just around us, but those longer term impacts years down the line. Yeah, nothing, nothing soft there at all. And that's, it's hard because even where to start sometimes and pulling back the layers of that onion, which is myself, right? And so, so difficult, the things that get in the way of me being present. Absolutely. I love that analogy you also said about sort of peeling back the onions, right? Because there's this Interestingly, a pushback, there's been a recent article about how mindfulness is really selfish. Mm. And I think this is where compassion has to come in, because I think sometimes there's this misunderstanding, too, that mindfulness is, well, it's self-awareness, I'm aware of myself, and so then we can get really internal, right, about the work. But compassion really allows us to actually, it's about 
showing up. It's about action, right? It's about seeing this. Being mindful is sort of the, the root, is search inside yourself, um, which is started at, at Google, really looked at mindfulness is really sort of the, the foundation of it. Now it's how do we then use that in action? Because it's not just about the internal self, but it's about how do I internally understand what's going on so that I can impact others in the world around me in a way that hopefully leaves it better than, than not. That is tough. That is tough work. In your, in, as you talk about cent- centeredness, seen in your work, this idea of purposeful play right. as, a, as a component of centeredness, you define it as mindfulness plus. And I can imagine that some of the, the clients that you work with or students are like, hey, listen, I'm a manager of people. I don't, I don't have time for play, Belinda. You know, so what do you mean by purposeful play? Um, and how does that equip yeah. us to, you know, lead others and lead our organizations more yeah, effectively? Absolutely. You know, it's funny because that word play, and I, I will say, it took me probably a while to fully embrace that part of it because it's always been very important to me. But sort of, you know, when I'm 20 something years old and, you know, trying to be taken seriously amongst mostly you know, male dominated sort of, uh, you know, I'm scared. I wasn't going to be like, oh, let's play. But as well, <laughs> and think about sort of where we are, right? In this world where there's so much chaos, so much uncertainty, we don't know what's going to, we don't, we have no idea what's going to, like day by day, I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to show up now in, in the news. And a lot of times we forget to play in this, and it's, remember, it's purposeful play. It's not playing just for the heck of like having fun, which is also important, that's but maybe not in the workplace. Um, but the sense of play is critical for us to be actually to actually be open to to this chaos that is around us. And as I was saying to someone yesterday, it's not about it's not about being chaotic as leaders. We have to actually be able to manage chaos. And in order to manage chaos, there has to be order, right? So, chaos, in order to be able to play, we have to have structure. So that's why it has to be very intentional purpose. Because until you expect, like. You can't really experiment unless you understand your core, right? Just like you can't really sort of think about, you know, imp- improv. So I do study improv as well. I'm not very good at it, but I really enjoy it. Um, but I, <laughs> and for me, but improv is so important. Like I keep doing it because it keeps my skills or I try to keep my skills, you know, really sort of sharpened that so that I can respond in the moment. And I always encourage any leader take an improv class. And they're like, what? I'm like, just take an improv class. And I remember we had one session where we would tell the leaders that it was an improv class because we say that people would run away. So we just called it a leadership <laughs> session. We had so much fun, right? We had a lot of fun, but there's actually real sort of skill building around it because there's so, and, and Robert Quinn, who's a professor, has really talked about these four fundamental states of leadership. And so much of leadership is being other focused. It's being results focused. It's really being able to pray in that way of creating, innovating, and creating, innovating isn't creating something out of nothing necessary. It's sort of taking what we have and seeing the possibilities. So that play becomes critical. That again, play is not without intention. It's intentional play, but it also enables us to also come to different situations and with people with an open mind. Because when you look at children, they don't have preconceived notions about things. They just see something, they're like, hey, let's like, Whatever. And you know, there's that famous study of oh, the marshmallow, the spaghetti with the marshmallow test, right? Where they take MBA students and they take kindergartners and you know who does it better? The kindergartners, 
right? Because junior guards like, oh, let's just figure it out. And we just have to be, and we have to have a strategy and we have to think about it. And they get tripped up, right? And we all do as we get older. So part of the play is to invite us to look at things with that beginner's mind, which is connected to mindfulness, of course, and centeredness. But how we approach things with a different mind so that I'm challenging those stories and assumptions I have about myself, I have about you, you have about me, right? Think about the listeners here, right? We all have stories now created already about what I'm saying, about what you're saying. We all have stories. How do I interrupt those? Well, I loved it, how, you, how you laid that out. It made me think about Legos for a moment because my kids love to play with Legos, the creativity involved there, this purposeful play and so much of it starts with the structure of an instructions that they get to build something and then where it goes from there, this, this creative, innovative approach to create other things. And then it's always amazes me what they, what they come up with. I love Legos as a play tool. How about humor? Is there room for humor in this purposeful play? And is it, is it important to leadership? Um, yes, I would argue yes. And I think so. Research <laughs> suggests that to be the case, like Robert um, Half has, you know, done a lot of research that um, humor, you know, there's evidence that employees who see their leaders as having a sense of humor, they're more engaged, they're more motivated. I mean, let's not, you know, let's be real right now. Well-being is such an important topic, especially in this COVID world that we're in. And, you know, having, you know, if we're spending most of our days working in the office, there is an element of fun. And I think a lot of times fun gets equated to not being serious. And I think it's important to know that we can do very serious work and still have fun while we're, we're at it. Is everything fun? No. Should everything be like, right. no, that's not what we're talking about. But it's really important to think about humor in its appropriate way. So there's a group out at Stanford, a couple of professors now that have published some books about humor at play. And I think it's actually... Yes, humor seriously. Like, I'm a bookshop, right? Humor seriously. And so there's more and more research around in Stanford Business School, I think, is actually teaching classes on humor in the workplace. Now, it has to be important what kind of humor, because I've also, and I'm sure you have, been in places where someone thought it would be funny to say this, and you're like, inappropriate, right? So yeah. humor has to be, and it's a skill that can be learned, because some people are like, I'm not funny. It's not about being the stand-up comedian, right? It's about how do I use affiliate, we'll call it affiliated humor to find those points of connection. Mm -hmm. And it's not to take anyone down. It's not to sort of belittle because we know the harm that it can cause. But sometimes just the right amount of humor at the right moment can shift, right? It can just shift a whole, a tense moment. It can shift a, a tough dynamic. It can also invite people again to allow themselves to to release against some of those very limiting beliefs or stories that we have, right? And the example yeah. of just, as I mentioned to earlier, on this amazing, I was very lucky in, 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 in being on this project for the last year, with 86 people from 61 countries, all leaders wow. from different sectors on DIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, equity. These, this is tough stuff, right? For some for some of these, many of these individuals, some of their whole identity means life or death, right? And, and we definitely had some very tough discussions, but we made sure that we had some purposeful play, a bit of show, because it allowed, it, just, it allows our brain to kind of open up that space or for those tough discussions. Sometimes even certain humors can protect people from burnout. 
right? We look at caretakers, for example, it can actually be sort of a real difference between burnout. And as we know in this space, well, wellness has become and should be more important in the workspace. There's that element of it. The last part of centeredness that you talk about is this idea of active agency. Uh, Agency is a powerful term these days. And, you know, whether it's dealing with change or conflict, you know, leaders often feel that they're kind of, uh, you know, in quotes here, you know, at the effect of their circumstances or maybe at at what others are doing rather than in control. In those sorts of circumstances, what can leaders do to avoid overreacting or or maybe the other extreme, which would be doing nothing, instead positively influencing the outcome and the direction that their team is going? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something that, and again, by the way, all of this is, you know, in the process of sort of learning and seeking, because if I had all the answers, it'd be great. Why don't? <laughs> wow. You know, but I think, you know, agency, it is a very powerful thing to really remember because self-efficacy, this is Bajur's work, right? That self-efficacy is one of the most critical components for any individual to feel like we have meaning and purpose in our work, Right. And it's this idea that we know from, you know, Martin Seldon's work, for example, we can learn helplessness, we can learn optimism, all of those things to be about. And yes, there are many things completely out of our control, right? If you've got a restructuring going on, right? I'm working with a group right now that whole reorganization, everyone is feeling like, ah, what do I do, right? And one of the pieces of agency is to recognize what do we have control and what don't we have control? And I know it sounds kind of simplistic to say, you know, that the only thing we do have control is our, our thoughts, our actions, our, our responses to things. But when we pay more attention to that, it's sort of back to Stephen Cummings, right? Spheres of influence and spheres of control. Yep. When we pay more attention to those, that the things that we can control, our spheres of influence actually can get bigger. Why? Because mm-hmm. when we're bringing that intentional focus, we start to sort of separate or at least do greater clarity to those areas that I can have some influence over and not ruminate over the things that I really don't have control over. Now, does that mean I ignore it, right? Like if I could wave my wand right. and say climate change or race relations, I would. I, I, I as a person don't have, I don't think one person sort of has right necessarily the ability to control some of those big things. But every action that I do can have that ripple effect. And leaders in particular, as we know, leaders' actions, leaders' thoughts, leaders' behaviors have the largest emotional and, and real life ripple effects, you know, to, to everything around that. And so recognizing that that agency that we do have and the choice we have, and this is where centeredness comes into play, is that it allows us to yeah. better discern what's the most appropriate action in this moment. Because the only choice I have is this moment right now. And yep. it's a choice. And if I choose inaction, that's still a choice. Because oftentimes we think, I'm just going to put my hand, I'm just going to pretend it's not working, you know, it's not happening, and therefore I'm not responsible. Inaction is a choice. And sometimes inaction is the most the wisest thing you can do, right? Silence sometimes is the wisest thing we can do. And the invitation for leaders particularly is to use it intentionally. Use it and choose that action rather than you know, that external locus of, you know, or the external sort of explanation of things that everything's happening to me, but that I actually have that agency to show up how I can. Can I control you? Not at all. Can I control your impressions of it? I can't. 
that I can control my thoughts, my behaviors, my responses to perhaps the control C. The power of choice. Love, yes. Thank you. So the second C of your compassion strategy is courage. How do you define courage and how can leaders practice it to show up in a more effective yeah. way? You know, for me, courage is the reason why sort of that really kind of came up as the second big piece of it um, goes back to authenticity. And something that I've discovered working with leaders, it's oftentimes, again, maybe on paper, we've sort of reached certain levels, right? And I think one of the things I'm sure you know as well through your, um, your, your discussions and your work is that that feeling of being really honoring yourself, it's hard, right? So it's really hard. And part of compassion also means seeing what is there, right? That's what compassion is about, is seeing what's there, the good, the bad, the ugly. That includes the, the, the wonderful, charming parts of ourselves and the less so charming parts of ourselves that we That's don't right. necessarily want others to see, right? But it's part of who we are. And so part of compassion, there's also that element, right, that, that Kristen Neff talks about, which is the self-compassion piece, right? Is also understanding that, we all have, you know, this sense of shared humanity and that, you know, it's not about if we mess up, it's when we mess up. I mess up all the time, right? So we all do this, but it's allowing ourselves to authentically show up as who we are, but also allow others to do that. So it really starts with, again, not just self-awareness, but it is self-awareness. And it's also yeah. this real exploration to what really matters to me, what what is, and we talked about this before, like, you know, it's Bill George, um, who's a wonderful person has really sort of put a lot of thought into this. It's what's our, I call it, what's our North Star, right? What's that compass that really drives us? How does then all my actions, my behaviors, thoughts show up into that? And, and it, is it out of alignment? Because when we're much clearer and it takes, it could be a lifetime of figuring out what that, what that authentic, you know, word, that, that word star is. But the more clear we can be, or at least sort of get it swimming in that direction, the more it helps leaders to discern what is the right course of action. Right? And is this in the service? Yeah. Who is this in the service of what? Who is in the service of whom? I love Bill George's work. Um, I use it in, in, in my negotiation piece to talk about how, how I show up and being consistent, you know, authentic to my values, this idea of authentic integrity. You know, what do you think it is about when leaders can show up on that way and be very authentic to who they are. And again, this idea of authentic integrity that allows them to handle any of the challenges they might face, whether it's a negotiation, maybe it's planning, directing others, maybe it's any sort of the myriad of managerial tasks that, that man, that leaders are asked to do. Why, why is this so important? And another piece that you just mentioned that made me think about this is that it's authenticity with compassion, right, and integrity. And I think that's important because sometimes we can mistake it, well, this is who I am and take it or yeah. leave it. And so we right. have to be mindful that when we're talking about this, it is not, authenticity is not permission to, to intentionally hurt or harm, right? Or, um, you know, all of those, those, those less than positive aspects of, of the power of leadership. But it's really thinking about that importance of integrity. And when we're much more clear about who we are, we are more able to, in some ways, it becomes, it, the decisions we make become, it's going to sound really kind of, in, in, as strange as I'm saying it, it becomes less of a personal issue because it's more of a personal issue than vice versa, right? Because it becomes almost very clear about 
what your core values are, what really drives you. And then it doesn't be, it's not about me or you, right? In terms of making, saying yes to you or saying no to you. William Urey, who I'm sure you, right, you're familiar with his work, of course, the classic, you know, getting to yes. But one book I always pretty much tell every person I go to, read the power of the positive now. Yeah. I love this book. It is such a simple, but it's like, wow, why didn't someone teach me this when I was, you know, younger? But that, you know, notion of, well, we're really clear about what our values are, then we can say, you know, it's like the roots of a tree. And then you can be more able to say no to those things that might stretch your values. And that's not saying no to you, right? I'm not saying right. that I, but I'm saying no to this opportunity so I can say yes to the other ways in which we can say together. So as a leader, when we sort of bring, and, and leaders are, they are forced into making some really tough decisions, right? Really tough decisions. And, you know, and sometimes it has, and when we think about it from a compassionate perspective, it allows us to really kind of zoom out when we need to at that 30,000 level. So that because the decisions we might make may impact thousands of people, thousands of lives, right? And as leaders, we need to not forget the humanity in it and and at the same time, be able to discern when those decisions are in the service of whether it's because of the, the vision of the organization or maybe it's the, you know, to um, ensure that, uh, you know, the commitment is to ensuring the longevity of this organization, whatever it might be. It's to be able to make those tough decisions, but still with humanity. And so we, when we've heard stories, we've heard stories about how, you know, in the past what, several months where Certain leaders may have made certain announcements, tough announcements, in not the most compassionate way, right? And right. email is not necessarily the best way you want to see it, right? So all of those, um, you know, that you know, entire divisions have been have been, you know, laid off. And so, how do we sort of bring right. that out? And so that's why courage to me is not just authenticity, but it's that notion of embracing one conflict and reframing that conflict is actually what helps us to innovate and create, right? Mm -hmm. It's what called. Uh, him on this venture just to say, but instead of just, you know, it's, it's that notion of creative abrasion, but you put two people together to present friction, but how do you sort of embrace it so that it becomes creative and productive abrasion? And then how do you have that notion of, of candor, but with compassion or am, I should think not by and with compassion. Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of this show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B, this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.